0: Our scripture this morning is Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 21. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I want you to imagine a scenario with me, however realistic or not realistic it might be for your family. But In this scenario, you're out backpacking in the backcountry, we'll say in Montana, and you have one of your children with you, maybe two, maybe they're 10, 12, somewhere in there. And something happens to you, and you cannot go any further. You sustain an injury, you have a medical emergency, and you need to send that child back the way you came, and to go get help. Imagine the conversation that would happen before you were willing to say, all right, it's go time. I need you to go, right? You'd give, in, you'd give specific instructions, wouldn't you? Because you'd probably know that backcountry better than they would. You'd give exhortations. I trust you'd give warnings, Those caves, stay away from the caves. The bears are just coming out of hibernation. They're hungry. Stay clear. Right? When you're walking up Dead Man's Ridge, go left. What direction? Left. Left. Because if you go right, well, that's why it's called Dead Man's Ridge. You don't want to go that way. As you're going, if you come across a moose, especially if she's got calves, Stay clear. They're usually pretty docile, but not when they have calves. Right? You would say, Be careful. That would be your your main exhortation, wouldn't it? Be careful. Don't put your earbuds in. Stand alert. Be careful. Be watchful. You know, that's basically what Paul's doing in our sermon text this morning. He tells us, Look carefully. Be careful. How. You walk. Now, this is the fifth and last time that Paul uses this language, walk, right? Which is biblical language for how we live. We came across this the first time, all the way back in chapter 4, verse 1, where they're connecting chapters 4 through 6 back to chapters 1 through 3. He said, Therefore, I, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk, to live in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And you'll remember chapters 1 through 3 told us all about that calling. We've been chosen from before the foundation of the world, predestined to adoption as sons, redeemed by the blood of Christ, sealed by the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our eternal inheritance. And so in light of that calling. We must live accordingly. We want to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We want to live in light of what God has done for us and made us into in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in 417, he continues to elaborate on this point. He says, "'Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, thus, thus living in light of our calling means that we are to think and act differently from unbelievers. And then in 5.2, living in light of our calling means that we walk in love. Oh, that's such an important exhortation in the New Testament. Here He makes it clear, we're to walk in a like kind of love shown to us by Christ. And then 5.8, what we looked at last week, we're to live in light of our calling, in that we've been transferred out of darkness and into light, or more to the point, as Christians, we are light, and thus we're not to walk in darkness. We are to walk in the light. And and so here in this text, Paul's pulling all of these things together, and he says, be careful. Look carefully. Take care how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. If you look at your outline that's in the gathering guide, there's two main points. These two points are intimately related. First, we are to walk in wisdom. And second, we are to walk in the Spirit. We'll begin with wisdom. If you're not there already, I invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, and I'm going to begin by rereading verses 15 through 17, Ephesians 5, 15 through 17. He says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Here you'll notice that there are two negative positives back to back, right? Negative, positive, The negative, don't do something positive, but do this. And we'll see that as we unpack these, that they're running parallel tracks. He begins by saying, watch carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. In other words, he's saying you don't want to live like those who are unwise. And and, and the language here takes us back to what we often refer to as wisdom literature in the Bible. So you might think of Proverbs, you might think of the Psalms, you might think of Ecclesiastes, uh, Proverbs 9 verse 10, for example, says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Psalm 111 verse 10 is along similar lines. He says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have good understanding. His praise endures forever. Biblical wisdom, then, is inextricably tied to faith in God. It's, It's inextricably tied to our knowledge of God. But but in the Bible, our knowledge of God is never simply head knowledge. Oh, sure, there's a cognitive understanding involved, but, but it's an experiential knowledge that drives not only what we believe, but also how we live. And thus, if you think in terms of Paul's teaching in Ephesians, you, you can see how this wisdom is connected to what he's been saying in, in Ephesians 5. Listen to Proverbs 5. One through five. You don't need to turn there. One through six. He says, my son, be attentive to wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge for the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to shale. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander. She does not know it. See, this wisdom is tied with how we live, right? This could be reversed. This could be an exhortation to a young woman as well, being careful of a, of a man. Wisdom is tied to the knowledge of God, and the knowledge of God affects how we live. You know, we can actually simplify this by saying the wise in the Bible are believers that, that walk along the paths God has taught us are good, right, and pleasing to Him. And the unwise or the fools are unbelievers who reject God in His ways and walk in the ways of the world." Now, of course, we could complexify it as well, right? Recognizing that believers, wise, can walk, can have moments of foolishness, but, but if we get at sort of the pattern, that's really the issue. And there it's clear in the Scriptures, the unwise, the fools are unbelievers. And so, back in Ephesians, this is running parallel to what he said up in 4.17 when he said, you must no longer walk like the unbelievers in the, remember, futility of their minds. So here we're dealing with the same idea, different wording. He's he's driving home the same point coming at it from a different angle. He's saying, don't live like the unwise, aka unbelievers, live like the wise, live your life." In the knowledge of Christ and His teachings. And notice here that those who are wise make the best use of their time. In fact, in the flow of Paul's argument, this making the best use of time is actually filling out what he means by walking in wisdom. So, one of the ways of the wise is that we use time well. We make the best use of time. Now, just consider why this is so. Think about it. Time is something we all have a limited amount of, isn't it? Oh, when you're young, you know, perhaps teens, you might think you have infinite time. But the reality is, we don't. And time is something that God has given to each one of us, and He's given each of us a limited amount. It's a finite amount. He has ordained the day that we would be born, and He has ordained the day that we would die. And thus, there's only so much time that each one of us has, which means this is one of the most precious limited resources that all of us have to steward. James tells us our life is but a vapor, here today, gone tomorrow. And so, the issue at hand for us is… How are we using this most precious limited resource? Are we using it to honor Christ? Or perhaps we're using it to make much of self. Maybe we're not even thinking about how we're using it. Consider some of the many ways time is used in our culture. Can you even venture to guess how many hours the average American spends on social media? That black hole for time. Going from tweet to snap to new post on Insta, Snap, Chatogram. I mean, it's, it's never ending, right? Little wonder then that, according to one study, the average American spends this is the average American, not the one that you think is always on social media, two and a half hours a day. To average American, two and a half hours per day on social media. That's roughly 912 hours of social media per year. That is 38 days of your life sitting in front of social media. 38 days, I mean, 38 days. The average American also supposedly spends another three hours in front of the television whether that's network TV or, you know, Amazon Prime TV or Netflix or whatever. Three hours. That's 1,100 hours a year, 45 days of your life sitting in front of the TV. And they're working you. I mean, Netflix has this down to a science, don't they? I trust I'm not the only one that's ever been pulled in by, you know, your spouse telling her, let me finish this episode, and then I'll come help. And then the, the next one comes in, right, with the, with the catchy first part, and you're like, oh, one more, one more episode. Well, those are clear. Time sucks, aren't they? Uh, then there's all sorts of other ways that we use our time, some positive, some negative, some, some neutral. You know, think of the time we spend driving our kids to school. How about running around with our kids to sports? I mean, he's knee-high, but he's in select baseball, select volleyball, select basketball, select hockey, select frisbee throwing. I don't know. You no, know, we drive to dance. We go to piano. We go to this, that, and the other. Never stops. Little wonder, then, that we all say what so often? So busy. So busy. I think it's a mark of pride in our day. (laughs) I'm a busy guy. You know, it's like, I'm busier than you. (laughs) No, I'm the busiest, you know. Uh, The result though is neighbor needs a hand. We have an opportunity to serve. Perhaps have an eternal conversation about Jesus. (laughs) Too busy. (laughs) Not today, I wish I could. Kid wants to play in the yard. It might lead to a real connection. Able to talk about things on his or her heart. Really connect in a way that matters to them. Not today, son. Not today, daughter. Too busy. Maybe tomorrow. Cat's in the cradle. If you know that reference. In our men's ministry two weeks ago, Tom Weichel was leading. It was excellent. He talked about the importance for men of fellowship with other men and, and, and time that we could engage one another. But he talked about how as men, we have so many things bombarding us for our time, and so so often that which is needed, that which we need so that we don't get taken down by the evil one. Brothers encouraging us, spurring us on. Too busy for that. Too busy. Can't do it. Little wonder that there was the need for the Christian book that was popular a few years ago called Crazy Busy. The author's going after the frenetic lifestyle that we live, saying we probably need to slow things down. And then right after that, another excellent book came out called Lazy Busy. And this guy was going after the fact that our busyness is social media, TV, a little more social media. Scramble now, scramble, scramble, so busy. The reality is some of us are crazy busy, some are lazy busy. But the fact is we all struggle with how to allocate our time, right? And look, I'm, I, I'm not at all saying there's never a place to sit back and relax and, and, and watch a show. I think there is. I'm not at all saying you should never check your social media, you know? You, everybody's gonna have their own conscience on that. I, I'm not at all saying that you can't or shouldn't enjoy sports or the arts with your kids. I think it's great. But I am saying convicted myself in wrestling through this passage is that we need to seek the Lord on what's the best use of this limited resource He's given us that we call time. And when we do, I trust that we'll find that oftentimes we're just too hyper-scheduled. And perhaps we need to learn to say no to good things so we can say yes to great things, make the best use of our time. Perhaps for some of us, we need to learn how to build in margins so that the opportunity that comes up with your son or your daughter or a brother or sister in Christ or even that unbelieving neighbor doesn't feel like that outlay of time is going to end up being the proverbial straw that breaks the camel's back. No, we want to walk as wise, making the best use of the time that God has given us with these short lives. And Paul says that one of the reasons this is true is because the days are evil, And this kind of language takes us back to the second chapter of this book. Remember there, Paul told us that this present world is under the influence of the devil. Sin abounds. And Satan prowls around like a roaring lion, waiting to pounce, waiting to devour. Sometimes he devours with the obvious. A workplace adulterous affair. Sometimes he pounces Man or woman is up, late, hits an internet site that he has no business being on, one that is completely out of step with who he or she is as a new creation in Christ. Oftentimes though, we must be clear, it's more subtle. Think about it like this. Today's Sunday, there's going to be football games on. When a good football coach is facing an amazing quarterback, he'll often try to slow his own offense down. He'll he'll, he'll run the ball more than he normally would because it takes more time off the clock. He'll take more time in between plays, not as worried about his own offense, but trying to keep that other quarterback sidelined. And we need to be clear, this is one of the great tactics of our enemy as well. If he can keep us sidelined from the mission Christ has called us to, if he can keep us on the sideline from the fellowship that we're called to enjoy that builds us up and strengthens us for the mission, he's going to do precisely that. See, because the days are evil, we must focus on the best use of our time. We want to be wise. We want to make the best use of this limited resource, knowing full well that all sorts of evil, both covert and overt, abound in our day. Thus, he goes on to say, therefore, don't be foolish. Instead, understand what the will of the Lord is. And this don't be foolish is parallel with the exhortation we just had, not to walk as unwise, because again, the unwise are fools. And biblically speaking, we've already said this, those whose lives are characterized as unwise or fools are unbelievers, and we're not to walk as unbelievers in the futility of their minds. Instead, we're to understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, what's he mean by that? You know, sometimes we hear something and it's helpful to recognize what it's not so that we can understand maybe what it is. And I think this is one of those places. More often than not, I think, as I just sort of live life in sort of, you know, among Christians, more often than not, when we speak of the will of God, we're speaking in terms of God's will for something out there in the future, aren't we? what's the will of God for, you know, my kid? Is he going to go to college? Um, Somebody thinks of, what's God's will for me with regards to a spouse or maybe where I'm going to live? And that's okay. Uh, To be sure, the Lord does lead us in things like this. But we need to be clear that A, this is not what Paul's talking about here. I think you'll see clearly that in, in a minute. And B, just as important, this is not the way Holy Scripture usually speaks about God's will. In fact, very rarely does it speak about God's will like that. Now, theologians are helpful here. They speak in terms of the two wills of God in Scripture. You have, on the one hand, God's hidden will. That's what we usually think about. Um, But you also have His revealed will. And so, in Deuteronomy 29, 29, you read, quote, the secret things, that's His hidden will, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of the law." Notice the connection between what's revealed and the law. See the secret things, God's hidden will, are the things that He decreed from before the foundation of the world that only He knows until the time He chooses to reveal. Again, things like, will my neighbor come to saving faith? Will I get married? What, whatever. His revealed will, on the other hand, is precisely that which has been revealed to us by God in Holy Scripture, as Deuteronomy 29, 29 makes clear. This is what Scripture is getting at the vast majority of the time when it speaks of the will of God. It's knowing and doing God's revealed will, which is Holy Scripture. consider just a few other texts to see what I'm talking about. In Psalm 143 verse 10, the psalmist prays, "'Teach me to do your will.'" For you, or my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. Here it's clear that the will of God is God's revealed will, and he's asking God for help to teach him to obey the scriptures, so that he might walk on level ground, so that things might go well for him. Or how about Romans twelve, one through two? There we read, in light of all of the theology of Romans 1 through 11, therefore, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable, perfect. In other words, as they reject the things of the world, as they renew their minds by understanding Holy Scripture, by understanding Christ, they they, they begin living to please God as revealed in His Word, And, and they're then able to test and to see experientially that following God's revealed will is best. And there's, there's so many other texts that get at this idea. So, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, this is the will of God, your sanctification. 1 Thessalonians 5, 18, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. 1 Peter 2, 13 through 15, be submissive to governing authorities, for this is the will of God. Do you see? More often than not, the will of God is spoken of as the revealed will of God. And this is precisely what he's talking about here in Ephesians 5. Remember, we're, we're, we're talking about the wise and the fools. And the wise seek to know God by knowing and following His revealed will. So, for example, in Psalm 119, verses 1 through 3, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. Again, Psalm 119, verses 9 through 11. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. See, the way of the fool is the way of the world. And thus, if we want to put off foolishness, we want to know the Word of God and live our lives in light of God's revealed will, which actually leads seamlessly right into the next exhortation that I said earlier is intimately related to what he's been talking about so far. Look, look back at the text starting in verse 18. Here we have our third negative positive. And like I said, it's intimately related to the first two. First, don't be unwise, but be wise. Second, don't be a fool, but understand, and implied, live in light of the revealed will of God. Here, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, the first half, don't get drunk, while is important in and of itself, is really a foil for the second half, as made clear by the fact that most of what he says here is pivoting off of that, right? You've got the be filled with the Spirit, and then five modifying participles to, to flesh out the results, what it, what it looks like when we are filled with the Spirit. Again, he starts with the negative, don't get drunk with wine, and we're still here in the realm of wisdom literature. Proverbs 23, 29 through 35 says, who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine. Those who go to try mixed wine. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things, and your heart will utter perverse things. You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on top of the mast. They struck me, you'll say, but I wasn't hurt. They beat me, but I didn't feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink." Or Proverbs 20 verse 1, wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Now, let me just say, this is not condemning alcohol. That would be like saying warnings against gluttony or condemning food right? This is condemning drunkenness. We must be biblical, and we must be balanced in our understanding here. Drunkenness is clearly a sin. To say differently is to go against what the Bible says. We've got to be clear on that. We must also remember that Jesus' first miracle was turning water to wine, the wedding of Cana, a celebration if there ever was one. The prophets, they, they, they speak of a celebration that's to come, fulfillment of the great kingdom of God with wine as a symbol of the greatness of that day. No, see, the point here is that this is getting at what's controlling us. And being filled with alcohol, being drunk on it, has a negative control on us, doesn't it? It, it affects the mind. We lose some of our inhibition. It can lead us to Some really stupid, unwise, and ungodly actions. And thus, the command here is that we are not to be filled up with wine, which can lead us to living like fools, but instead, we want to be filled with the Spirit, which leads to a Christ honoring life. Now, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? And again, I think this is another instance where hitting on some areas of what it doesn't mean can be useful. I don't know about you, but I've heard some pretty bizarre applications of what this is supposed to mean. So, for example, this is not talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, right? It's not talking about a second baptism or a third baptism or ongoing need for baptism in the Spirit. No, no, that language is a one-time event type of language. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is is what we often refer to as regeneration, right? That's when the Spirit of God, Quickens the mind, He opens our eyes to see our sin, to see our need for a Savior. He gives us the faith to believe on Christ. He comes to dwell in us, right? And, and, and that's a one-time thing. And he never leaves us. Uh, related, this is not an exhortation to think in terms of sort of a holy Spirit fueling station, where we seek to figure out the right incantation. Maybe if we hold the hands a certain way, maybe if we pray, Lord, my tank's running a bit low. Please fill me with your Spirit. Fill her up, Lord. Make it so that my cup runneth over. Sometimes, you know, King James English gets things going. No. We have to always remember. We interpret Scripture in light of Scripture, and we read Scripture in context. You know the old adage… A text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. In other words, if we rip something out of context, we can make it say whatever we want. If you write me a letter and I take one of your lines and I'm like, look what he said. Can you believe it? Right? We can make it say almost anything. And and so we must ask the question: does Paul use this kind of language elsewhere in Ephesians? And the answer is, indeed he does. So turn with me, flip back with me to chapter one. Just look at a few places where. He uses this language of being filled. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul's beautiful prayer. I'm going to pick it up in verse 18. There he's praying that we'd have the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we may know what is the hope to which he's called us, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ. Now he's going to talk about Christ that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that's named, not only in this age, but also the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So here we see that the church is the fullness Christ. And what you're going to see as we go through here, like so many things in Scriptures, there's an already and not yet aspect to this fullness language in Ephesians, because here in Ephesians 1, we see that the church already shares His fullness. But when we turn to Ephesians 3, Paul prays that we'd be filled with the fullness of God. And look over at that biblical prayer, starting in verse 14 of chapter 3. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being, that Christ may dwell in your hearts. Notice there, he's praying for something that's already true. Christ dwells in the believers, but he's praying for more of this. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Well, then you come to chapter 4, where we see that Christ gives as gifts to His church, gifted leaders, so that they might equip the church, so that we might all measure up to the fullness of Christ, with the result that we become mature, not led astray. Look at that one. Starting in chapter 4, verse 11, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood to the measure of the stature, the fullness of Christ." And there you can see it's tied to maturity, right? Not being led astray. Uh, By the way, most commentators looking at this language in in Paul say that he's, he's almost certainly has in mind temple language, right? Think about Solomon's temple, builds the temple. They pray to consecrate the temple, and what happens? The Spirit of God fills the temple, right? God's presence fills the temple. Well, now we're the, in the New Covenant, we are the new temple, right? Both in terms of the church as the new temple, that's the way the New Testament can talk about this, or, or even individual believers as we're indwelt by the Spirit, the very temple of God. And, and shouldn't surprise us then that as this kind of language is picked up and brought through. There's also a Trinitarian aspect to this fullness. I, I trust you noticed it. Paul prays that we'd be filled up with God. When Paul speaks like that, he's almost always talking about God the Father. He, he prays that we'd be filled with Christ. And now Paul says here, be filled with the Spirit. So there's this idea, there's this longing that we're, that we're full of, of God. Still we're left with the question. Oh, okay, I recognize we should be filled with God, and this is sort of getting at like maturity language and already not yet, you know, we have God dwelling in us, and yet we want more and all that. But how do I pursue this? I mean, after all, this is a command I'm called to heed. So, so what is it that we're being called to do when he says, be filled with the Holy Spirit? And here I think the striking parallel between Colossians and Ephesians is so helpful. I'm gonna ask that we put on the screen uh, a parallel of Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3. And if you read commentaries, commentators will always comment on how similar the second part of Ephesians and Colossians are. These letters were written almost certainly at the same time to different churches, but with very similar emphases. And here, this particular text is very, very similar. And so, just just look at these. I think this is useful. In Ephesians 5, the overall command to where he's going is, be filled with the Spirit. Colossians 3, the overall command with the same direction he's going is, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Uh, Ephesians 5, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Colossians 3, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Ephesians 5, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Colossians 3, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Ephesians 5, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Colossians 3, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. Both of them, wives, submit to your husbands, children, submit to parents, slaves, to masters. And I point that out because when you look at those parallels, it's clear that Paul sees being filled with the Spirit as running parallel to letting the Word of Christ dwell in us richly. Which which brings Paul in line, no surprise, right? Because all of Scripture fits. It brings Paul in line with Jesus' own teaching on the Holy Spirit. When you look at John chapters 14, 15 and 16 there jesus teaches more than anywhere else on the holy spirit and the overall emphasis over and over again is the holy spirit is not into the new and the novel the holy spirit takes that which is of christ and he shines light on it for the believer he he impresses it down into our hearts so that we become affected by it and it changes our lives That's certainly what's going on here, and it certainly fits the overall context of what Paul's been saying. Think about it. Don't be unwise. Be wise. Make the best use of your time. How do you make the best use of your time? By not being a fool and actually understanding and living in light of the revealed will of God, understanding and applying Scripture. How do we do that? By not fooling about with worldly things like getting filled up on alcohol and being led astray by that, but being filled with the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of God works through the Word of God so that we might grow up into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The point here is that we want to be filled with the Word of God, God's revealed will, as Holy Scripture works in a very unique way through the Word of God. We're to become more mature in our faith. We're to be more full of God. As believers, God dwells in us through His Spirit to attain in principle what we already have, fullness, spiritual maturity. And Colossians 3.10, I think, gets at the same idea with different language. He says, put on the new man, which is being renewed, similar to this idea of filling. There's this change happening. This is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator, or to be filled with the Spirit, more full of God more full of Christ. And the effects are striking. I think they can be broken down into two different categories. Being filled with the Spirit, being filled with Holy Scripture affects our heart and our actions toward one another and toward God. That's really those five modifying participles, that's what they're showing us. And, and, and I want you to see that in both, how it affects us toward one another and toward God, in both, we sing. And let me just say, if you're a Christian and you don't sing, wrestle with this text. There's a lot of other texts we could wrestle with, but I think this text is making it clear. Christians sing. And I I want you to notice here, thinking in terms of being filled with the Spirit, right? Having the Word of God uh, enlightened by the Spirit, and so that He's at work in in our heart, how it overflows in our heart and actions toward one another, and notice that we sing first to one another. Look at at verse 19. It says, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual psalms. Do you know that one of the reasons we sing is because we encourage one another, right? Think of the wonderful theology that we sing. And by the way, in Psalms… Hymns and spiritual songs. This text is helpful because there are some traditions that say we only sing psalms. Well, this says psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We only sing the old hymns. If it, if it was written after the Puritans, we don't know psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, and we encourage one another in those. I, I trust I'm not the only one who's had the experience of coming in here very discouraged, coming in here at a low point. And hearing brothers and sisters singing the gospel encourages my soul, right? Hearing they believe the same thing. I'm not the only one. Hearing them sing of the glory of Christ. This is what we do, church, when the Spirit of God is at work in our lives. We sing. We sing to one another. Notice another way that our being filled with the Spirit affects our heart and actions toward one another. That's what we might call a willing deference. Uh, this is here, we submit to one another, and I'll be really brief here because that's a pivot for next week where where we're where we're going. Um, but what we want to see is that when again the Holy Spirit is working in our lives through Scripture, He He's He's shining light on Scripture and changing us internally through His Word. There's a, there's a willing deference. There, there's a submitting to one another, or in the flow of this, you might think submitting one to the other, because there's an order that He's setting out, right? We all submit to Christ. Wives submit to husbands. Children submit to parents. Slaves submit to masters. And so, as we're filled with the Spirit, we we embrace an order that probably is not looked upon kindly by those outside. But again, we're not to think like unbelievers. We don't think like unbelievers when we're filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit also affects our hearts and actions towards God. And again, we go back to singing. Uh, Jesus in the gospel says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. I think we could say out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth sings, right? We're studying the Word, and the Holy Spirit's just shining a light on it. And by the way, that's one of the big differences of, you know, of unbelievers studying Scripture and us studying Scripture. I, I tried to read the Bible before I ever came to faith, and I thought it was a real snooze fest. I just thought it was so boring. And then I came to faith, and it's like, whoa! Have I really ever even read this? This is unbelievable because the Holy Spirit is shining a light on it, right? He's teaching us through it. And as that happens, we can't help but overflow into song, into praising God. In fact, he says, we overflow into thankfulness, verse 20. Giving thanks always and for everything To God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, always? For everything? What about in those terrible moments? Again, when we understand what's going on here, the Holy Spirit is working through Holy Scripture. We're reading Holy Scripture and we're reminded. Of our rebellion against God. We're reminded what we deserve, the wrath of God. We're reminded what Christ has accomplished. Yeah, we can give thanks in everything at all times. And let me just stop for a moment. You might be here this morning, and you've never trusted in Christ. You know, the Bible teaches us that Christ is our only hope. The Bible teaches us that all of us deserve God's judgment. And yet, we see the good news, what we call the gospel, that God in His kindness sent the Lord Jesus to die on the cross so that we could trust in Him. On the cross, He took all of the punishment of all who would believe. And friend, you might be here and you've never trusted Jesus, and I would just say, look to Christ. Look to Christ by His grace. Come to understand what you deserved and what He's given you, and it will lead to thankfulness. For Christians, yeah, we thank God, and we sing. And I'm going to pray, and in just a moment we're going to have an opportunity to respond by singing, by being thankful for all that Christ has done. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for Your grace. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the way that You work in our lives through Your Word. And we pray that You would continue that good work that You have begun. We pray that You would indeed grow us so that we would be more full of You. Lord, we want our lives to be consumed with making much of Jesus in our homes, in our workplace, in our neighborhoods, wherever You would have us. And so, Father, we pray, and we thank you, and we praise you, we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.